Let's, let's pray together. Lord, we come before you this morning thanking you for the opportunity to sing and to praise you. Lord, we thank you for um, just being with us, Lord, and Lord, that you are helping us each day to, to look to you and to magnify you and to worship you. And Lord, as we have come in prayer and in song, and as we come to approach you and your word, that Lord, you would be glorified and lifted up. Lord, we don't just lift up ourselves, but we lift up other local churches that we seek to faithfully pray for. God, we lift up Welcome Home Baptist Church this morning, that you would be with them, that, Lord, you would care for them and encourage them and give them strength, Lord. Father, as they uh, seek to share the gospel with this community, and, Lord, that you would um, give them strength, we pray. We pray for Pastor Lonnie, that you would be with him this morning. Father, we lift up um, other churches in our larger network. We pray for Grace Reformed Baptist Church in Merrick, New York this morning, that you would be with them, that you would make yourself known to them, that you would uh, continue to strengthen them, Lord, in uh, thought, word, and deed as they take the gospel to that part of New York. Would you cause it to bear fruit, oh God, and that you would grow and strengthen their congregation. Father, we also lift up the persecuted church. We uh, lift up the persecuted church in Bhutan this morning. Lord, we take it for granted that we can meet without fear in this country, and we uh, know that that's not the case for all peoples around the world. And so we ask that you would be with the persecuted church this morning uh, as your word instructs us to pray as if we're in chains with those that are in prison for your sake. And so we pray that you give them strength and endurance, Lord, whether they are called to lay down their lives for your sake or to be imprisoned or persecuted, that, Lord, you would use them for your glory and that you would give them joy as we know from the book of Acts that they counted it all joy to suffer for your name. And, Lord, we know that when persecution comes, it multiplies uh, your church. And so may you continue to grow your church. Father, we pray for... Uh, unreached people groups this morning, uh, that you would take the gospel to them. Lord, it's hard to believe even 2,000 years after you have come that people haven't even heard of your first coming, and we await your second. And so we lift up the unreached people uh, of China this morning. We think of the Bay people, a smaller group of people within China that desperately need to hear of your grace, that you would send missionaries to them, that a translation of your word would be um, put in their dialect that they might uh, know you and worship you. And Lord, would you be glorified in doing that in our generation, that we might hear of um, the Chinese praising you more and more, that Lord, you would grow the church there uh, despite uh, political um, opportunities to try and squelch what you are doing, that it cannot be stopped. And so we pray for the Chinese this morning. Father, we lift up the crises in many places. Uh, we continue to pray about the war in Ukraine and, Lord, uh, the aftermath of this earthquake in Turkey and Syria. Lord, that you would be with those responding uh, to these great needs, the refugees from the war and even a continual need for refugees that are still um, finding homes, Lord, from Afghanistan uh, in, in years past. And so, Lord, would you show your grace there uh, in all parts of the globe, that your church would be there to love and support and 
uh, encourage and preach the gospel. Father, we pray for the Janigans uh, with People International that you'd be with them, Lord, as they're seeking to daily care for the needs of those around them in their community, that you would give them open doors for sharing your gospel. Father, we pray uh, for others that we know there as missionaries that you would open doors for, again, fruitful ministry, even in the backdrop of such horrible tragedy, that, Lord, you would uh, cause healing and uh, even rebuilding. Uh, be with those who are grieving the loss of loved ones, Lord, and be with those who are sick in the midst of, of this crisis. Father, we continue to lift up those grieving in our own congregation and those who have lost loved ones, that you would continue to care for them. Uh, Lord, we uh, rejoice about uh, the expectant mothers that we um, have um, here at the gathering, and we ask that you would uh, be with them, that, Lord, their pregnancies would be healthy and that there would be um, just no complications in their delivery. Uh, Lord, we just thank you uh, for uh, these, these precious children, Lord. We know they're a gift from you and that you would uh, bless uh, each parent, Lord, as they prepare their homes for uh, such endeavors as raising children. Um, there can be no greater call uh, than to, to raise children in you, and so we ask for your help there. We pray for our brother Nathan, Lord, who's preaching at another church this morning, that you would be with him, Lord, and give him utterance as he seeks to minister your word to uh, others, um, especially churches without pastors, that, Lord, you would be with him. And thank you for that ministry of his. Father, we lift up uh, our church plant down in Wilkesboro. Uh, we thank you for Christ Alone Church. We thank you for uh, them meeting this morning, that you would be with them, that you would strengthen them, you would encourage them. Thank you for uh, this charter group of members that has started. Thank you for the building that you have provided for them of Suncrest Orchard. Would you um, just give them all that they need to uh, prepare for uh, Easter Sunday services in that building as they continue to meet in homes and desire more space, that, Lord, you would provide for them and their needs. And finally, Lord, would you help us as we gather to worship? Um, this morning, that you would be glorified in the reading of your word and the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we go into a time of uh, the uh, study of the word, um, I, I really just wanted to, to speak to the children really quickly and um, uh, just, just to have them come forward uh, real quickly and just sit on this front row. I just want to give a an exhortation to them of encouragement during these, um, this hard time that we're going through as a church. So if, if, let's just say if you're under 12, why don't you just come up front and, and just sit down real quick in the front row. And I just want to share something with you uh, real quickly. Yeah, on the, I'm sorry, on this front row of seats, guys, so you guys can see me and I'll, so I can speak into the mic. You guys sit on this front row here. Thank you guys so much for, for coming down. I just wanted to uh, just give you some encouragement that we've been going through a, a lot of hard times, haven't we, as a church? And I know that some of you have, have uh, been hearing about that. And uh, one of you shared with me a couple Wednesdays ago, uh, after the meal, Pastor Scott, is that when we go next door and fight some more? And, um, and I'm sorry that um, that's been the case, um, that that's how you view it. And so I've been chewing on that, and I want you to know that we love you very, very much. 
And I want to say that I'm praying for you and that you are precious to this church. And I know that some of you have come to me this week and it's broke my heart because I know that some of you have lost friends and that friends are, are not here and you want them to be here and you don't understand that and I'm, I'm praying for you. And I just want you to know that as we've been looking in God's word on Sunday mornings in Genesis, what have we been studying? Who can tell me what we've been studying? What? Good, creation and the flood. And the world as we've been studying about was destroyed as we know it. And yet Noah comes into this new earth, right? And we're seeing that God is restoring the earth and its population. We're gonna be studying that over the next several weeks. Well, God loves to restore. Did you know that? He loves to restore our hearts. And I just wanted you to come down and just take a moment with you to tell you that I love you and we're praying for you. And I know that you think about that differently sometimes. And some of you have even left notes on my desk and I just want to say thank you so very much. And um, continue to um, put your uh, children's bulletins in the uh, offering plate because they're so encouraging to me. And I want to get back to answering your questions and all the things that we've kind of not been doing the last few weeks. So just wanted to encourage you uh, with that. And can I pray for you before we uh, go to service? And then if you didn't get a children's bulletin, we do have some in the back. So you can get those when you go back to sit with your parents, okay? So let me pray for you before we get into uh, the preaching of the word. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for these precious children. Lord, you warn us in your word to be careful not to lead little ones astray. And God, I know in these tough days, um, children are are looking at this in different ways and trying to understand all that's going on uh, in the life of this church. And uh, I just thank you for each one of them, Lord. And I pray that you would um, heal us, that, Lord, you would forgive us in ways that we have um, even led them astray, maybe, or caused them to stumble. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would encourage them, that you would help them, Lord, to look to you, I thank you for their Sunday school teachers, Lord. I thank you for the time that they put in to teach you and teach these children, Lord, uh, about you. And uh, we ask that you would bless them, God, and that you would bring up uh, the fruit of your word in their hearts to regeneration, that, Lord, you would save these children and use them for your glory. Father, would you uh, help them to uh, heal in this season? Thank you for their precious hearts. And God, would you care for them, we pray, in the days ahead. God, um, give wisdom to their parents, Lord, as they guide them and teach them. And Lord, um, help us um, as a church to love and support them um, and how important ministry is. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage us all for your sake and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, children, so much. You guys can go back to your, your seats if you'd like. All right, we are going to um, be back in our study in Genesis. Uh, thank you for your patience with that um, as we um, took a break to look at Psalm 4 this last week. Um, and so we want to, uh, want to pick up there uh, in Genesis chapter 8, the end of ch chapter 8. So if you would turn in your Bibles to the end of Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 20. And then would you stand with me as we read God's word together? 
This is God's word. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. This is God's word. May you add his blessing to it. You may be seated. What is your most valued possession? You know, it's in the answering of that question that shows ultimately that object's value or its worth in your eyes, let alone its importance. It's interesting, as I watch my children this past Christmas open gifts, my little one's particularly focusing in on a particular favorite gift of theirs and continuing to this day to enjoy it and use it and play with it. And yet, when something is precious to us, it holds a high place in our lives. You think about the things that are important to you. You think about how the market is driven by interests and all kinds of things that could be Come idols to us, but they are interesting to us. You look at trends, you look at travel, you look at all the things in our world that people value, and it shows mainly because our time, our resources, our energies are backed behind them. Our focus, it, 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 it consumes the itinerary of our lives. So a quick listen to the news or getting on social media for a few moments will be met with what people value most. And even in the midst of disaster in our lives, people also go to seek to protect what they value most, and they do that first. And this always isn't evil when you think about caring for your family or perhaps life insurance or other medical insurance to protect our families from loss are good things. But ultimately, it reveals truly what our hearts are looking at and valuing most. And so right here in our text this morning, we see that as the earth, as Noah knew it, had been destroyed, and he and his family and a portion of the animal kingdom have been saved through the ark, and they're coming off the ark in the context here of the end of chapter 8, it's in the aftermath of such things and earthly catastrophe, after the wrath of God has been poured out on the world as we've seen, on this sin-cursed world, that we see Moses, the human author of this text, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says in verse 20, then Noah, implying that after coming out of the ark, Noah, whose, again, names mean, his name means rest, he did something. And what is it that he do? He did. What did he do? I'm from the mountains. 
What did he do? He worshiped. He worshiped. Worship, reverent honor that is shown to God for his great worth. And so in this, these few last verses of Genesis chapter 8, we want to look at six principles in this text this morning that we see very clearly that Moses writes down concerning Noah's worship. After coming out of the ark, this teaches us many things as we see that the earth from this point on would be repopulated, not just in the animal kingdom, but humankind between Noah and his sons and their wives. So let's look at these six principles very quickly. First of all, we're going to see that worship is the only proper response to God's saving work here in verse 20. Secondly, we're going to look at worship is the priority of God's people even after such disaster in verse 20. Thirdly, we're going to see that worship is pricey. It's costly. Fourthly, worship is pleasing to God. We'll see that in verse 21. And then fifthly, that worship praises our covenant or praises our covenant-keeping God in verse 21. And then lastly, we'll look at how worship is the proof that God is being supremely treasured. First of all, let's look at this first point. Worship is the only proper response to God's saving work. Again, consider the context that Noah, after leaving the ark, is prepared to worship God. It says, now Noah, and what does he do? He builds. Surely, after disasters of every kind, there comes the rebuilding phase. I remember going down to Mississippi after Katrina and just seeing the complete devastation that happened after that hurricane. And for years, rebuilding was going on. And still, there's scars of that storm alone on the coastline. Truly in Turkey right now, the minds of people after the dead are buried are turning to rebuilding and trying to understand what life will look like after that. After any catastrophe of any kind, there is a rebuilding phase. And Noah here, after coming off the ark and the world as he knew it was completely destroyed, he doesn't start by starting to rebuild his life. He starts by worshiping God. He builds an altar and begins to sacrifice upon it. It's the first recorded act of Noah after the flood. Of course, coming off of the ark. Truly, worship is our only proper response as God's people for his saving work. Whenever you see God's salvific work in the scriptures, it's always followed by worship. And here in the Old Testament, but also in places like the Psalms, you see how God is saving and there's a cry for help. But after that, there's praise to God for how he acted. As we saw, for instance, in Psalm 4 last week, recounting God's saving work in multiple ways. But consider a New Testament issue of this. Turn over really quickly to John chapter 9, just to paint this same picture here. John chapter 9. 
the healing of the blind man is probably a familiar happening in the life and ministry of Jesus. But look down to uh, John chapter 9 and look down to verse 35. After, commit, or after um, healing this blind man, he says in verse 35 that Jesus heard that they had cast him out for he had been, um, he had been cast out because of um, uh, not being able to worship because they were saying that he was in sin, utter sin, that, that how could he uh, teach them? And so he had been cast out. Jesus hears about this. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, he says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And then Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who may see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Again, a, a picture, the reason I took us there is to show us that even when we see the ministry, in the life and ministry of Jesus that great works of God, great saving works of God are always accompanied by the response of the recipient towards worship. It's our only proper response. Turn back to Genesis 8. We are called to worship. And so it's the only way that Noah responded, or it's not the only way that Noah responded to God, but it's the first way that Noah responded. And we know that Noah's character has been told to us here in the early parts of Genesis. And so Noah being saved from the ark and from the flood, just as we are saved by Christ from the wrath to come, our response ought to be worship. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul to the Romans after sharing the gospel with them and the deep theology of what it means to be justified and sanctified and the hope of glorification one day, he says, what is the proper response? And in chapter 12, verse one, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that what is good and acceptable and perfect. The only proper response for God's people to his saving work is worship. Secondly here, we see in verse 20 that worship is our priority as God's people. Not only is it a proper response, but it's priority. So Noah found favor with God. We know that from uh, chapter 6, 7, and 8. We've seen that God is preparing Noah, and he's preparing the ark through Noah to ultimately save uh, a remnant of creation and Noah and his family. And he's using Noah to accomplish his purposes. He's continuing to do that even in the context here of the end of chapter 8. And we'll use them as we'll see in the following passages of, of uh, Genesis chapter 9. That he will use them to uh, be fruitful and multiply. 
and fill the earth. And so it was his purpose to use Noah in this generation. And sure, while there's, mankind was still sinful, the earth wasn't cleansed of sin. We know that. Uh, we know that from multiple uh, passages, but also that Noah and his family were in need of the saving work of God as well. And so as we looked at it in uh, weeks past, Noah was living by faith. We know that Noah believed God and therefore not just obedience as worship to God, but his sacrifice was worship and this was a priority for him. Is worship a priority for us regardless of our circumstances? Is worship a priority? What does this look like in your personal life? How about your family? What about us corporately? Is worship a priority for us as it was for Noah? Does it really take catastrophe for us to bow in prayer and worship? Well, God certainly uses the tough issues of life to draw us to himself. Is that necessary for the people of God? Surely God's goodness to us in Christ should drive us to worship. And so not only is uh, it a proper response for God's saving work, not only is worship a priority for God's people, but thirdly here we see that for Noah and for the animal kingdom, let alone for us, that worship is pricey. You know I'm trying alliteration here, so pricey is probably not as best as costly, but what do I mean by this? It's costly to the one who gives it. Now we get a hint of this in chapter 9, verse 3, that the animals are being given as food for Noah and his family and successive generations. And we'll come back to the fact that there was clean and unclean animals in a moment. But yet there's not a record of them sitting down to partake of a meal here. They worshiped as a priority and they took, notice that they took in verse 20, and they offered some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt, altering, uh, burnt offerings rather on the altar. Noah gave God the best that came off the ark. And that was what was left that was being saved from the earth as he knew it. Noah gave God his best. He gave it in abundance. Notice from every animal that was clean. And so again, you have all these animals that were spared, and yet they're now being sacrificed. They were saved, yet to be sacrificed. This is a, should speak volumes to us as we looked at in the last point, that we are called to be living sacrifices to God. We've been saved to serve and to be used by God to sacrifice that he might be made much of. Noah gave his best, and he gave in abundance. Not to mention that these were animals, again, that were set aside for this purpose. So from the beginning again of Genesis, after the fall, we see that God himself sacrificed animals in order to clothe Adam and Eve. We saw that in Genesis chapter 3, for instance. Sacrifice has been applied, all, or implied rather, in the text here by Moses all the way thus far that this practice of sacrifice 
is something that God was going to put in place. Now, we don't hear the details of this until Moses gets us to uh, the law in the book of Exodus. But we do know that sacrifice was instituted. And there's no exception here in the fact it's implied if you jump back to chapter 7, verse 2. Sacrifice and the, the expectation of it is implied here. It says in verse 2 of chapter 7, Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, male and his mate. In other words, why would there be a, a, a distinction between uh, clean and unclean unless God had a purpose in that? It was for sacrifice, but it was also that they would be of provision of food, as we'll see next week in Genesis chapter 9. And so God had in mind both clean and unclean animals to be in the ark for these very purposes. So herein lies the truth, again, that God will provide the sacrifice. We see this later on in Genesis chapter 22 with Abraham, don't we? When Abraham is taking his son Isaac and obedience to God is going to sacrifice his son because God has requested it. And Isaac says this in chapter 22, verse 7. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. See, Abraham believed God. Noah believed God, that God provides what he requires. This is the message of the gospel to our souls. God requires perfect obedience, but we can't give it. He provides it in the life, death, and resurrection of his own dear son. He provides what is lacking and what is needed. And so worship is pricey. Do you remember when David sinfully took the census in 2 Samuel? Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 24 real quick. The kings were not to set their hearts on chariots and on the strength of their military. They weren't to gather large amounts of gold or wives because the Lord warned that this would turn their hearts away. But turn to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 24. The context here to save time, again, uh, was a census that was taken. And it was a sinful census. God had told them not to do this, and David did it anyway. And a lot of the times the kings did this to count their numbers and to, to put their trust in their military strength. And um, so God is going to bring a curse upon David. He gives them three choices and he's begging God to, um, to just be in the hand of the Lord because there's kindness with God, but not with man. And then in verse 24 of 2 Samuel 24, it says this, King David said to Aruna, no, but I will buy it from you for a price. In other words, he was trying to buy the threshing floor so that he could make a sacrifice to God. And uh, this uh, generous uh, guy is saying, hey, I'm just going to give it to you, David. And David said, I will buy it. Um, I'm going to buy it from you. And then he says this, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. 
And so David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And so the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. Even in the context of disaster upon the nation of Israel for its own sin, David offers costly worship. Worship is pricey. Do you offer cheap sacrifices to God? Do we, as God's people at the gathering church, offer cheap sacrifices to God when he is worthy of so much more? Is it costly to you? Is it pricely to you? As the famous hymn says, when I survey the wondrous cross in the final stanza says, when I survey the wondrous cross, and he says, when were every realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Church, worship is our proper response to God's saving work. Worship is a priority for God's people. Worship is pricely or costly. Fourthly here, worship is pleasing to God. Look at verse 21. And when the Lord smelled this burnt offering, the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart. We'll get to that in just a moment. But notice here, this verse, while it may make you think about lunch and your stomach starts to growl thinking about cooking food here, there's more to this text. It's not merely that God likes the smell of cooking meat, but that this costly sacrifice made by faith was pleasing to God. It was glorifying to him. Why? Because God, when he is glorified, is most in the, its proper order. God is magnified when he is glorified, when he is seen for who he is. That it is right and true and good to worship him because he deserves it. He is God. Now notice here, if you are reading in an English Bible, you'll see that these are capital letters for his name here, L-O-R-D. Again, the reason we point that out is this is God's covenant name with his people, Yahweh. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes, but we see here that God smells this pleasing aroma in the Hebrew text, this is what is known as an anthropomorphism. It's attributing a, a man-like characteristic to God. We know that God is spirit, that he doesn't physically have a nose. And some of you quick thinkers will say, ah, but Jesus does, and you're right, that after the incarnation, Jesus is fully God, fully man, and that we know that, that he uh, is in heaven at God's right hand, and certainly he is human, but in the sense that we know that God himself does not have a nose to smell. And so what is it saying? Well, it's language that God is pleased with this sacrifice of faith. And so here, 
Moses, using this figurative language, is showing that true sacrifice and true worship is acceptable to God. He smells it here in verse 21. And then notice it says that God says in his heart. In other words, again, we, we know this is speaking to us that we might understand it, that, that God is accepting this worship to communicate to us, the readers, that God is well-pleased with a life of worship and sacrifice. And truly, Noah has been worshiping up to this point, has he not? Is not obedience worship? Is not preparing the ark over a hundred years in obedience to him worship? It's not just snapshots of our lives, but it's our lives in general that are worshipful, that is pleasing to God. In prayer, in our songs, in our giving, in our listening to his word, to responding to him in obedience. He is pleased with that. Why? Because he is worthy of it. And he knows that when we are most satisfied in him and giving him the worship he deserves, that that is when he is glorified the most. And we, as God's people, are saved in order to be living sacrifices unto him. In other words, continual praise is coming to him based upon what he's doing in us and through us as the people of God. We join the heavenly host, as it were, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And no sacrifice smells as good, however, than what the, every covenant in Scripture has pointed to up to this point and will point to. And that is the sacrifice of God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16, that this is a fragrance that continues to go out into the world. He says it this way. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing to one the fragrance of death to death, to the other from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. In other words, as God saves people through the ministry of the word of God, as we share the gospel with our friends and family, God is praised, he's worshiped, he's raising up worship to his own name. As a dear friend of mine has a hat that says, populate heaven. In other words, his point is preach the gospel that we might find more worshipers. And so worship, church, is a proper response to God's saving work. Worship is a priority for God's people. Worship is pricely. It's pleasing to God. And then fifthly here in verse 21, worship praises our covenant-keeping God. Starting here, look at the verse, middle of verse 21 and ending at the end of verse 22. God is speaking, notice. He says in his heart, after smelling this sacrifice, he says this. And this is the beginning of his covenant. We'll pick up with this in chapter 9 because it continues here uh, as far as his covenant is concerned. But he says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. 
For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So God in beginning his Speaking of his covenant is making promises. Notice that he's promising never to curse the ground again because of man. But he speaks also to the sinfulness of man. After all this catastrophe and pouring out his wrath upon the known world at that time, sin still is not extinguished. The true depravity of man is not extinguished. It's abated in many ways as far as it's uh, sinfulness, because we know from chapter 6 onward that the sinfulness of men was great and violence was throughout the world. And God told Noah at that point, I'm going to destroy the world, build an ark. And so while all of this happened, sin itself was not eliminated from the earth. But again, this is where the covenant with Noah is so important. It speaks to us more, not just about the character and nature of God, but ultimately a shadow of what Christ would do for us. It won't be an ark. It'll be himself. He will come to earth and save us all. He would die in our place. He would go to the cross. He would rise again. He would go to the Father's right hand where he is going to intercede for us until the day he comes back for us. He would do this for his people. And Noah's ark and Noah's life is but a shadow of what he would do in the days, years ahead. To think of this, that while Noah and the new world that he was in, sin still remained, yet for us, he will remember our sins no more. For Noah, that he had to again look on the sinfulness of men, and we'll see in chapter 9, it started in his own family. He was seeing the destructive results in his own family, even just moments after stepping off the ark. But in Christ, our sin will be taken away. We know that one day there will be sin no more because of the sacrifice of God himself. And so here in this text, God is establishing that he would never curse the earth again like this. Notice that he's not going to do it in this way, but notice also the text says that he's going to establish the seasons really as we know them. Seed time and harvest and day and night of, of, of course, winter and summer, so on and so forth. It's a continual proof of the reminder of his promise when we see the changing of the seasons. I know some of you might be confused because it's like summer this week and then next week it's going to be winter again. And, and, but, but know here that the seasons will change. That he's promised this. He's speaking his faithfulness even in the midst of our weather and the way the earth rotates around the sun. And it will be so, notice, until the end. Now, we know that he promises here never to curse the ground again, but we also know that that from the New Testament, that he is not going to destroy this again by water, but he will do it by fire. Turn over to 2 Peter real quick. 2 Peter chapter 3.
taken in the context of Noah's life. We've looked at this before because Peter speaks to it. And while it took 100 years, and we looked at the patience of God in the days of Noah, so now in Christ and in our lives, we wonder why does Jesus not return? With all the things that are happening, wars and the evilness of man, why does Christ not return? Even so, come Lord Jesus. But we know why he hasn't come back. Because the mission's not complete yet. There's still people who have not heard of him. So Peter says here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. In other words, he's timeless. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some of you count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come and reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed." So Peter goes on and says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the hastening of the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What great hope the people of God have. And so while God is promising this, I want to take us there um, to remind us that we, just like Noah, are awaiting God's judgment. The problem is we don't know a date. That was no joke. Know a date. We don't know a date. Sorry. Had to share that. I'm a dad. So we see here that it will come as a thief in the night, and this will happen. The Lord will return, and he will judge the world. And so God's not going to change his mind about destroying the earth or going back on his promises. And we'll see in chapter 9, he proves this by putting a bow in the clouds. Is the original sign of God's faithfulness and covenant to his people. But God is going to bring judgment and he will deliver his people Today, he will deliver us. Tomorrow, he will deliver the next generation until he returns. And when he returns, he will do it fully until there's a new heavens and a new earth. Our existing earth, the very ground from its vegetation to its creatures that have been all defiled by sin because we are still post-flood, yet sin has not been eradicated. But our awesome God remembers us just like he remembered Noah and will give us a new heavens and a new earth to dwell with him for eternity in all righteousness. There will be no need for a son, as the scriptures say, because he himself will be our son and desires and our hearts set on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so church, worship takes place in the context of covenant. We know this from the first commandment that, our, that worship shows our obedience, our gratitude, our celebration of our relationship with our covenant-keeping God. Every covenant from the beginning of the Old Testament on into Christ is a context of worship to God. 
Even as Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, if you remember, he explained that the cup is a new covenant in his blood. Both sacrifice and promise are involved in these covenant relationships. There's God's part, there's our part. In Christ, it speaks ultimately of what Christ has done. Worship being the only proper response for the hearer of the gospel. Worship then, by its very definition, implies covenant and relationship between the worshiper and the one who is worshiped, namely that being God, of course. As the London Baptist Confession says helpfully here in chapter 22, paragraph 1 says this, the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all. He is just and good and does good to all and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Church, worship is not therefore about us. It's about him. It's not even how we want to worship. It's that God tells us how to worship him. He instructs us and knew exactly what to do as he went off the ark. He was to build an altar and worship, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Church, worship is a proper response to God's saving work. Worship is a priority for God's people. Worship is pricey. It's pleasing to him. It praises our covenant-keeping God. And finally and lastly, here in verse 21, worship is the proof that God is being supremely treasured. From the beginning of verse 20 here to the end of verse 22, we see that Noah treasured his relationship with God. We know that he walked with God. Our worship reveals the content of our heart. What we worship reveals much about us. Noah made God the object of his worship and therefore his priority. Noah valued God's word and that was evidence in his obedience by faith building the very ark that saved his life and the life of his family. And then here we see that he's continuing to trust in him in what was yet to come after the ark. And this new world to Noah was strange and would no doubt be different. But God was with him and in him and he found favor with God. God was Noah's treasure. Noah treasured God before the flood he treasured God during the flood in the ark, and he treasured God afterwards. Worship is not so much about what is being offered as it is to whom it is being offered. Whether it's the widow's might or a king's treasury, our offering is to show God his worth, his value, that we as worshipers are making much of him in and through our lives, not just songs, not just Sundays, but our very lives as sacrifices to him. And so we end up where we began this morning. What is it that we value most? If Noah was here this morning, no doubt he would be a better preacher than I am, 
but Noah would surely answer that God is his supreme treasure. Church, what are you worshiping then? How are you worshiping? What does the quality of our worship reveal about where our own hearts are before him? And I'm preaching as much to myself as as to you that our hearts are easily swayed by the things of this life. We are called to make much of him. He is to be supremely worshipped in all that we do. Worship, therefore, is costly in these ways. It ought to be the very heart of every missionary to go to the ends of the earth. Why? Because Christ is supremely treasured. And the world ought to know him. And so it's important for us to make that happen and to see that happen. And not all of us are called to go, but we are to be part of that in taking the word of God to the nations. Or maybe just across the street. And so in the fact, his desire, Noah's desire, ought to be our desire that others might enjoy him and know him. In his landmark book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper speaks of the supremacy of God in missions. If you haven't read it, I highly encourage you to read it. Few books have changed my life like that book. And the thesis of his book is this, simply put, missions exist because worship does not. Think about it for a minute. Missions exist because worship does not. What does that imply? Why aren't people worshiping? They're not worshiping because they haven't heard about him. How can they worship someone they've never heard of? How are they to treasure someone that they don't know what he's done for them? Why is it that God chooses to use us, his redeemed people, to take this message to him? Good question. I don't know. It just is. He proclaims through his image bearers the very message of the gospel that saves the soul. It is a mystery that one day perhaps we will see completely unfolded. But he calls us to go. He calls us to be his instruments. He calls us to make much of him. But how can we do that unless we're treasuring him? Church, the job of taking Christ to the world it starts right here with worshiping him in spirit and in truth in all places until the prophet Habakkuk comes true when he says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And so therefore, church, we can take great encouragement that God is doing missions work in this church when we are worshiping him and making much of him because people are attracted to him. They want to know him. And then we take this message to the ends of the earth. I'm so humbled that in 10 years, this church has made impacts around the world. And we have never had 100 members. Church, that is God's work that the gospel is being proclaimed, the churches have been planted because we are worshiping. He is worthy of it. 
And we want him to return, but the job is not yet done. And so to make much of him in our lives, make much of him in our marriages, make much of him in your singleness, make much of him in your families, make much of him together, make much of him in our community, make much of him to the ends of the earth. He is worthy of being glorified. Noah glorified him in his day. Are we glorifying him in ours? He must be glorified in his people. And he loves us and will not stop at anything until Christ is formed in us. Why? Because he is to be valued above anything and anyone else. He knows that there's nothing better than himself. He loves us so much that he will, by his spirit, accomplish the task of being our highest treasure. He will not share that place with any other. And he loves you enough to disappear everything in your life and cause it to completely dissolve because he loves you that much. He desires to be enjoyed. Dear saint, what is competing for his proper place in your life and mine? What can be more healing in these troubling days as a church than to worship him? A.W. Tozer once said, to many Christians, Christ is a little more than an idea, or at best, an ideal. He is not a fact. Millions have professed believers talk of him being real, and yet they don't act, and they act rather as if he were not. Our actual position is always to be discovered by the way that we act, not by the way that we talk. Church, God models for us in the life of Noah here in this text, in chapter 8, verse 20 through 22, that worship is a proper response to God's saving work. Worship is a priority for God's people. Worship is pricely and costly. Worship is pleasing to God, and it praises his covenant, and rather his covenant keeping and our relationship with him, and it's proof that he is supremely treasured in our eyes. Are we worshiping, church? And as we'll see in chapter nine, the outcome of God's covenant with Noah is blessing. There's a blessing to us in Christ, and there's a blessing for Noah to which we'll turn our attention next week in chapter nine, Lord willing. Let's pray. God, we are thrilled that you love us enough to give us your word to show us the very passion that you have for those that you that have found favor in your eyes. And Lord, in the context of great catastrophe where every living thing was snuffed out on this planet, a man and his family found grace in your eyes. Lord, your word tells us that wide is the gate that leads to destruction. It's a default location for all of us, save Christ working in us. God, I pray for any soul here this morning that has never repented and truly turned to you, that today would be the first day that you would cause them to repent and run to you, the ark of Christ. Lord, thank you for your challenges about worship. God, my heart is convicted by this very passage. 
God, make us worshipers in 2023, better worshipers of you. Forgive us for the fruit that comes out of our lives that is just mere flesh and can be explained by that. But Lord, may you work in this church in such a way that when people and when this community looks, they cannot explain it in any other way, but that God has worked in us and through us. God, help us to treasure you above all else. We need it. Correct us, change us, humble us. And we know from your word that your kindness leads us to repentance. Truly, you come to us as a father, not as a judge any longer because of what Christ has done, that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But you come alongside of us as a dear father, correcting his children. You love us so much. Would you bring healing to us, O oh God? Would you just revitalize that passion for sharing the gospel? Would you be supremely worshipped in this place? Would you be made much of? Would God care for us? Bring us more leaders. Lord, bring us missionaries that we might send them out wherever you call them. God, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Use this message, Lord in any way you choose, for we are yours. Amen. Our deacons come forward for this morning's offering. Let's, let's go to the Lord. Lord, you are worthy of worship. And while that takes many forms of singing and in prayer, our own lives, the preaching of the gospel, Lord, we come to this time where we respond to you through giving. And your word tells us what you have done for us in Christ. And, and so it, it emotes out of us that we are called to respond to you through giving because you gave to us. And Lord, you tell us not to be 
doing this out of compulsion, but out of a free will of our hearts. That's why it's called an offering, that we give a portion back to you, what you have given to us, because we love you and you are worthy of it all. You don't need it, but it's about what you're doing in our hearts to give as we have freely received. And so, Father, I pray that you would take these offerings that are given with joy, that are given sacrificially, that are given in your honor and in your name for the furtherance of the gospel in this community, but to other places as we encourage church planning, both domestically and internationally, as we collect funds this week for, to relieve those in Turkey, as we care for those in our own community, as we uh, pay for the, the needs of this church, oh God, would you provide and would you give us wisdom to use these funds, for they are yours, to your glory, because you alone are our treasure. In Jesus' name, amen.